perhaps many of us know of Aesop's Fables, a collection of stories, short stories that teach some sort of practical lesson. I want to share with you, as we begin this morning, Aesop's Fable called The Lion and the Four Bulls. Four bulls, which had entered into a very strict friendship, kept always near one another and fed together. The lion often saw them and as often had in mind to make one of them his prey, but though he could easily have subdued any of them singly, yet he was afraid to attack the whole alliance as knowing they would have been too hard for him and therefore contented himself for the present with keeping at a distance. At last, perceiving no attempt was to be made upon them as long as their combination held, he took occasion by whispers and hints to foment jealousies and raise divisions among them. This stratagem succeeded so well that the bulls grew cold and reserved towards one another, which soon after ripened into a downright hatred and aversion, and at last ended in a total separation. The lion had now obtained his ends, and as possible as it was for him to hurt them while they were united, he found no difficulty now that they were parted to seize and devour every bull of them one after another. That's not just a fable. That is reality. And that is what Paul is addressing in our text this morning in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 and following. We began 1 Corinthians last week, and as I mentioned, we're going to take up six church challenges that Paul addresses in this letter that we call 1 Corinthians. Corinthians. Now, we began, as I said last week, these six divisions, but we're going to take like three sermons for each division. So this is in the midst of, this is the second sermon, but we're in the first challenge, which is division. And then we're going to be dealing with subsequent challenges that Paul addresses in later parts of the letter. But this challenge is addressed in chapter 1, verse 10 through chapter 4, verse 21, and Paul devotes more words to this particular challenge, maybe except for the challenge of spiritual gifts, but they're pretty close, than any other challenge he addresses in this letter. We considered the antidote to division last week in the first nine verses where Paul lays out the thanksgiving and grace-oriented perspective that is to operate among the people of God, that we are not to be fault finders and criticizers um, and uh, spec finders among our brothers and sisters, while we are to deal with sin in our midst and all those things, we are not to be, have a critical spirit or a divisive spirit or anything like that. And so Paul takes the lenses of the gospel and he puts them on himself as he looks at this church and he reminds himself and the Corinthians of all the ways that he sees God at work in their midst. And that is a key antidote to a divisive spirit among the people of God is identifying and expressing evidences of grace in the church. But this week we're going to look at the reality the fact of division in chapter 1, verse 10 through the end of chapter 2, verse 16. And next week, Lord willing, we'll take up the larger section of chapter 3 and 4 and look at how Paul solves this issue of division with the gospel. So this morning, we're going to take a long, hard look at this subject of division and how it happens in the life of the Corinthians and how it can also happen if we are not on guard in the life of Heritage Baptist Church. So first point is the concern about division, the concern about division that Paul mentions in the very first verse, chapter 1, verse 10. He expresses this concern simply 
and directly when he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. This appeal that he makes to the Corinthians is a strong word of exhortation. He's appealing in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, signifying that this isn't just his private opinion. This is something by which he has the backing of the King of Kings. This is something that Jesus desires of the Corinthians, not just Paul. In fact, this is the will of the Savior. We know this. On the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus prayed for his church. And in John 17, our Savior prayed very specifically for the church's oneness and unity. In John 17, 11, Jesus prays, Holy Father, protect them by your name that you, may, that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. John 17, 21 and 23, Jesus prays again, May they all be one as you, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. John 17, 26, I made known your name to them and will continue to make it known so that the, the love you have for me may be in them and I may be in them. Now to be sure, sometimes division must take place in a church, especially when the issue is moral, or theological. Paul told the Corinthians, in fact, in chapter 5, to practice division. He told them to exercise church discipline and to remove from the fellowship a man who was committing sexual immorality with his stepmother. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we are informed that divisions or factions in a church can be used by God to make clear those who really belong to Christ and those who don't. But, when division in a church takes place for the reasons the Corinthians are dividing in chapter 1 through chapter 4, it is wrong and dishonoring to the Lord because it's not rooted in anything moral and it's not rooted in anything theological. It's rooted in a cult of personality. It dishonors the Lord. It dishonors His glory. It makes a mockery of His gospel. And it does massive damage to the church's reputation in the world. If you think about all the things he addresses in this letter, from insults and lawsuits to divorce to immorality to drunkenness, and yet this is the first issue on Paul's front burner that he takes up with the church. And not only is it the first issue, but it's the issue that's given the most press in the letter. This should tell us something about the importance of church unity. In fact, one could make an argument that the reason this church is dealing with so many other issues is because it's so divided. Just like the lion in our opening fable preyed upon all them as he sowed the spirit of division among them, he was able to exercise his influence here and here and here and here and here and here and pick them off one at a time. So that's what seems to be happening in the Corinthian church. When church unity is weakened, God's people are vulnerable to satanic attack. So without the unity of the church, everything we are called to do as a church, is at best weakened, if not undermined completely. So, brothers and sisters, when we begin treating each other, not as family, but as enemies, we are like the enemy. And a watching world will be turned off to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the process. Now, unity, of course, does not mean uniformity. A football team is united, not because everyone is playing the same position, but because everyone is straining toward the same goal line. And orchestra is united, not because everyone's playing the same instrument, but because everyone is harmoniously playing along 
with the same conductor on the same sheet of music. In the same way, the church is united, not because every Christian is exactly alike, but because we all pledge allegiance to one and the same Lord. So for the sake of Christ's kingdom, we ought to rejoice that the gospel is proclaimed and believed in churches that are not like ours. Though we disagree on important secondary matters, we can in principle be unified in the gospel, even if we're separated in local churches. There should be a measure of charity between all gospel-believing churches where we commit to pray for and esteem and desire the best for one another. We're all praying on the same team, after all, even as we maintain our different ecclesiastical convictions with regard to how church should be done. So to the world, this cross-denominational unity in the gospel speaks volumes about the centrality and importance of Jesus Christ himself. It shows that our unity is not centered in any kind of tradition. It's centered in the person of Christ. And the life of the Christian, if we unify in the gospel, that demonstrates that we cherish the gospel the most. That in reality, just the opposite, when Christians elevate personal traditions or opinions over gospel unity, they reveal that there's something more important than the gospel in their lives as far as around what they're going to gather and unite. Failure to benefit from the gifts of God's universal church actually has a way of impoverishing our own local congregation. In fact, love of separation and the inability to unify in the gospel with others, unlike ourselves, may be evidence that we ourselves don't fully grasp the central doctrines of the faith that we claim to profess. In fact, Paul says this, doesn't he, in the second verse of the letter? He says to the church of God that is in Corinth. He doesn't think of Corinth as the only church. He says there's a church of God there, And it's in the city of Corinth. It's one of God's churches. And then he says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So Paul, even in the opening verses, is jealous to remind the Christians in Corinth and to remind us this morning, we are united with all of God's people who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in spirit and truth. We're called to be saints together with them. We are one church of God, granted that is expressed in many local congregations, but nevertheless is one church. So Paul's concerned that that's being undermined in the Corinthian Corinthian congregation. And as a result, he expresses that concern in verse 10. Secondly, the form of division in verses 11 through 17. What form does this division take? He's concerned about it. He appeals to them to not have it. Now he begins to describe the report he's received regarding what this division is is looking like, how it's manifesting itself. Now we're brought into what form their division took. So the Corinthians were picking sides and choosing different ministers that they preferred. Some sided with Paul, others sided with Apollos, still others with Peter, and others aligned with Jesus. (laughs) Now, these were not full-blown schisms yet. They had not split off into other congregations, but there were four cliques, four factions within the congregation. Let's look at them one at a time. First of all, you have the loyalists. The loyalists, those were the people who said in verse 12, I follow Paul. I follow Paul. These were the loyalists. They would say, we are of Paul. He started the church. 
We came to life in Christ by Paul, under the preaching of, of the gospel by him. And Paul is the one we're going to listen to above everyone else. So undoubtedly, there was a big group that followed Paul. Notice Paul is not excited that people follow him. No true gospel minister ever is. No true pastor worth their salt loves it when they're the favorite of anybody in the congregation. And Paul doesn't either. Hypocritical leaders love it. They love to be first. They want to be preferred, but not Paul. Because true leaders celebrate team. They know the team is what it's about, not about the individual. Secondly, you have the stylists. These are the ones that were of Apollos. I follow Apollos. They were attracted by the different kinds of preaching, and they had especially been a draw to, drawn to Apollos because he was, he was a preacher, man. He could preach the paint off the walls. In Acts 18.24, we learn that Apollos was an outstanding speaker in a world in Corinth that loved and appreciated public oratory. They loved it when people could capture a crowd with their words and hold them for minutes, sometimes hours on end with their stories and wisdom and illustrations and ability to connect. I'm sure there were many in Corinth who were saying, oh, I love to hear Apollos. He's a great preacher. He's warm. He's capable. He's eloquent. He makes the Old Testament come to life. They were interested in the style that Apollos presented. Thirdly, you have the traditionalists. These were the ones who were of Peter. That is Cephas, who's the Aramaic name for Peter. Peter, one of the original big three and the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. The traditionalists would have said something like, well, I don't know about Paul or Apollos, but let's get back to the beginning. Let's talk about Jerusalem. We are of Peter. So they said, evidently Peter had come through Corinth. They knew him. In fact, Paul mentions in chapter 7 that Peter had a wife. And so the Corinthians were aware, and Peter had visited Corinth and preached in Corinth. And they felt like when Peter came, they were on rock-solid ground. It was like they were walking with Jesus himself. It's like we are right up close to one of the core pillars, the one on whom Jesus said, whose confession he would build his church. This is the one we're sticking close to. Jesus didn't say that to all the disciples. He said that to Peter. We're on really, really solid ground here with Peter. And then finally, you had the originalists. I'm of Christ. They went even back beyond Peter, and they said, let's get off of this whole man train and Paul and Apollos and Cephas. They're all just servants. Let's go back to the real leader. We are of Christ. We may be of Apollo. You may be of Paul or Peter of Apollos. We're of Christ. We go back to the Lord alone. The Lord is my shepherd. What he says, we'll listen to. Not Paul or Peter or anyone else. It makes no difference to us, but we are of the Lord Jesus. And it was that spirit of kind of self-righteous smugness among all the groups, the loyalists, the stylists, the traditionalists, the originalists, that they were separating into different cliques based upon their preferred teacher and dividing up the congregation and quarreling with one another over these things. So it seems that different Christians in Corinth were using these associations, not just as an expression of a personal taste, but as an, as an access to power. 
as a way to influence and assert their influence in the congregation. There was a party spirit that was at work. Political parties may be the way of the world, but it's not the way of the people of God. The Corinthians were being worldly partisan by being loyal to one particular Christian teacher, likely the one who baptized them, as Paul mentions in verse 14 and following, that he wasn't aware that he baptized many of them, but evidently that was one way in which they were uniting around different teachers. Now, the question is, there is a wrong attachment to ministers, but is it wrong for us to have a favorite preacher or a teacher? Well, I don't think so, necessarily. I have my own. But while we all have our favorite preacher, and up to a point that is not wrong, there are some people who do, in fact, speak to us more effectively than others and minister to us more effectively. And it's only natural that we should want to listen to them and follow them. We all have different ways of learning and different teachers that we prefer and different styles that we like and people who praise the God for the various gifts in the body of Christ where people are able to minister to each other more effectively based upon those gifts. But it's a serious threat to the life of a church to find people choosing favorite preachers to the degree at least that they don't want to listen to anybody else. And they'll create fan clubs around them and recruit others in the church into their group and demonize or minimize the effectiveness of others. It's the exclusiveness, the cliquishness that Paul has a problem with. People who do not even want to come to a service if someone other than their favorite is preaching. So now, if you do not have to be, you don't have to be very old, right, to understand that this is still a problem in the church. In a recent interview in World Magazine that I was reading this past week, Tim Keller noted that the issues of division in the church today are not like anything he's ever seen. He said, quote, in virtually every church, there's a small or larger body of Christians who have been radicalized to the left or to the right by extremely effective and completely immersive internet and social media loops, news feeds, and communities. People are bombarded 12 hours a day with pieces that present a particular political point of view, and the main way it seeks to persuade is not through argument but through outrage. People are being formed by these immersive, this immersive form of public discourse far more than they're being formed by the church. And that, brothers and sisters, is the original Corinthian problem that's taking place in the 21st century. People listening to the way secular communicators communicate, resonating with that, and applying that within the congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Corinthianism, it's sin. If it's in your heart, you need to repent, lest you destroy the body of Christ. If you're inflamed by outrage, something's wrong in your soul. If people who are mad get you fired up, something's wrong in your soul. The Corinthians spirit is alive and well. Are these tendencies present in our own local congregation? Okay, show of hands, who is of Mark? I'm glad to not see any hands pop up. Who's of Thad? I'm of Thad. I remember. Who's of Keith Matty? I'm of Keith Matty. Abby, good for you. You should be of Keith Matty. <laughs> Who's of Keith Withrow? He's not here. We can all raise our hands. He's preaching at Gospel Community Church for them this morning. Who's of Pastor Ted? Love Pastor Ted. So thankful for Pastor Ted. Let's broaden it out. Pick your Christian celebrity. Are you of John Piper or John MacArthur? Who's your guy? Are you TGC or T4G or G3? 
Now, Paul says this is all basically fundamentally wrong. Whenever this attitude of gathering around a man or group of men is allowed to perpetuate itself, it's the source of much trouble and difficulty in the church. This is why I think that God has ordained a plurality of leaders in the church so that the church will receive ministry and leadership from a team rather than an individual. But as we see right here, plurality of eldership does not solve party spirit. It can, in fact, foment it and foster it even more. We see it, in fact, in the church in Corinth right here. But this is also why your pastors encourage you to read and listen broadly to respected biblical voices. Don't only read books from one author, one stream, or one tribe. Christ alone is the one to whom we are to be loyal. And we can learn from God's people who speak to different parts of the body of Christ in different ways. So the question becomes, how does Paul address this? That's the form it's taking. It's taking this partisan, political, uh, party spirit uh, in the congregation where people are uniting under or around different leaders. And how does he address it? Well, he addresses it with the gospel. As we're going to see over and over and over again, every single church challenge that Paul faces, he addresses with the gospel of Christ. He says, here's how you're not thinking and living in light of what the gospel says is true about you and about the church. So he says, first of all, we see how he responds in verse 13. Notice the very first words out of his mouth. Is Christ divided? Mic drop. Is Christ divided? No. If Christ himself cannot be divided, then how can brothers and sisters in Christ divide his body? Their division was creating a lie about what Jesus Christ is like. And that's why Paul addresses it that way. Christ is not divided. Division tends to chop up Christ and parcel him out as though his person and work came in various packages. When you follow one man, you're getting a view of Christ. But there is no teacher in the church who has ever come along, including the Apostle Paul himself, who has ever had a totally complete view of Christ. That is why we have four Gospels. Because not even one of Jesus' disciples who was with him or with an associate of his was able of giving us a complete enough view of Christ. God, therefore, has designed that there be many teachers, many preachers, many voices in the church. In the body of Christ at large, there are many who can make a contribution to your understanding of Christ. If you limit yourself to one speaker or one tribe or one stream or, and only feed on them, you're getting a distorted view of Jesus Christ. You're chopping Christ up. You're dividing him and taking one little portion as one man reports it and ignoring the rest, and thus your view of Christ is deficient and unable to satisfy you with the fuller vision he intended for you. So he says, is Christ divided? No, then we ought not to be either. But secondly, he says, was Paul crucified for you? See, there he indicates that the problem with the, quick, the clickishness that was taking place is that it tended to overemphasize the significance of the leader in the life of the person. It builds that leader up too much and gives them too much of a final and decisive role in the life of those Christians. They did not have a decisive role. Christ did. The Spirit did. The Word did. They were merely human agents through which that happened. And in building that person up too much, it makes them a rival to some degree to Jesus Christ himself, and Paul will have none of that attitude. 
He wants no rivals for the allegiance of Jesus Christ and the congregation of Jesus Christ. Now, people begin to think things about their leaders here in Corinth that weren't true and expect things from them that they're unable to deliver. You only have to listen around today and you find outstanding leaders being held up by congregations as almost equal to the Lord himself and their value to the church. We can't go on without him. We tend to deify men and people look at them as if they can do no wrong and can make no errors and they know everything and can settle all the questions and the church gets itself in a world of trouble then. That's a very dangerous attitude. And yet we tend to think of people as being the channel by which deliverance came to my heart. That if it weren't them, it couldn't be anybody. There's not a single Christian teacher who ever lived who can help us be forgiven for one single sin, not even one. There is not a single teacher who ever lived who can heal the hurt of a broken heart or supply energy and adequacy to someone who feels worthless and unable to function in society, not one. There's not a teacher among us today or at any other time who's able to open the mind and open the eyes of the heart and reveal to us the glory and majesty of God, not one. That is not the work of men. That's the work of God himself. He chooses various channels through which he will work, and we must allow him the privilege of doing whatever he sovereignly chooses. They will not all be the same flavor. They will not all have the same characteristics. And brothers and sisters, we reveal our immaturity when we insist that only those with certain characteristics are the ones we will listen to, and we feel, can feel, we, and we feel that they, can, they alone can bless or strengthen our faith. No man is the Savior. No woman is the Savior. No man can deliver us except Jesus. There is only one Lord. Jesus himself said it in Matthew 23, 8. One is your master. All of you are brothers. Now, evidently, as I mentioned earlier, they were boasting in who was baptizing them. That's why Paul concludes in verse 13 by saying, Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No doubt Paul baptized them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as Jesus instructed us to baptize in Matthew 28. But they were boasting over who had baptized them. Some of them were saying, well, Paul baptized me. Or Apollos baptized me. Or Peter came through, and when he preached the gospel, people responded to it, and Peter baptized us. And he even walked on water, remember that? This was a mark of status with them. They were dividing over this whole issue, and Paul says it's all wrong. It would destroy the unity of the congregation and split them up and provide an inaccurate testimony to the person of Christ before the watching world, especially those in Corinth that they were called to reach. So he says, I didn't baptize many of you. I thank God that I didn't. Think about that. He said, if you're going to divide about all this, I'm glad I didn't baptize you because I don't know if you're Christians. Christians don't act like that. They don't talk like that. They don't behave like that. Now, Paul sees them as Christians, very immature ones, as he'll talk about. But nonetheless, that's definitely in the background. For Paul, the person that baptized you is utterly insignificant. By paying too much attention to the person who baptizes us, we can miss the point of baptism. It becomes how I look and who baptized me and how warm was the water. It's warm. Instead of death, burial, resurrection, new life in Christ. So that's the form in which the division took. Now let's spend the rest of our time talking about the reason for it all. 
the reason. Paul's going to give us four big picture reasons for why this church was so divided into these personality cults. And he begins in verse 18 and goes right on through the end of chapter 2. So we're going to skip around a little bit and walk through these passages in a big picture fashion. First of all, the first reason for this division is division grows when we believe the gospel isn't enough, so we place more trust in perspectives than in the power of the cross. We place more trust in perspectives than in the power of the cross. Notice what Paul says in verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God, for it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. See, we can't start by taking our cues from what people expect. How someone responds to the message of the cross is not determined by the speaker. It's determined by the spiritual state of the listener. Only those who are being saved will believe the gospel message, no matter how much you dress it up. Here we have evidence that regeneration precedes faith. That is, one must be born again by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit and be given a new heart that's receptive to spiritual reality before they trust Christ. The so-called wise of the world are exposed as foolish because they reject the cross of Christ. Now, why is the cross foolishness to the world? Because God affects salvation on his terms, not ours. And his terms look silly and stupid to most people. Most Jews expected a conquering Messiah, one who hung on the cross, cursed in our place by God. That's offensive. He should be king. They're looking for a mighty sign, someone to come and overthrow the Romans. Make them a Christian nation again. The Gentiles, or Greeks, expected salvation by wisdom, knowing some secret hidden truth about the world or some path to follow to earn salvation. Nothing could be more foolish than a man who died on a cross being the source of eternal salvation. Tom Schreiner says, the cross turns the world upside down. What is considered wise among human beings is actually foolish in God's sight. Indeed, God in his infinite wisdom determined that human wisdom would not be the pathway to the knowledge of God. If the creativity and brilliance of human beings led to salvation, praise would belong to the wisest and most gifted human beings. The message of the cross reverses and undercuts the expectations of human beings. The message of the cross reverses and undercuts the expectations of human beings. Weakness becomes the circuit through which strength is conveyed. And what seems to be foolish, that is the message of the cross, becomes the vehicle by which wisdom is transmitted. Power is not displayed fundamentally through amazing signs and wonders, but through a crucified man, a person robbed of all dignity, who was exposed to the most degrading death conceived of in the Greco-Roman world. So division grows when we believe the gospel isn't enough. So we place more trust in perspectives than in the power of the cross. Secondly, division grows when we believe the gospel isn't enough, so we place more trust in positions more than the purpose of God. Notice what Paul says in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And you had no position. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him... You're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not in people, not in positions, not in perspectives, in the Lord himself. See, God's people have always been tempted to do the Lord's work in the world's way. Like the world, we seek to gain power and influence and authority by appealing to a personal connection with an important person. But God doesn't build his church through the elite and important. He builds his church through nobodies. Paul calls notoriety an actual detriment to the gospel. Notoriety has never been a part of God's criteria for saving and using people. Paul calls the church in Corinth to remember that those whom God saves are not significant by worldly standards. The reason why God passes over such people often... is to render null and void the wisdom and strength of the world. Now, not many includes the fact that there are some with wisdom and knowledge and riches and greatness and all that in the eyes of the world, ranking and power and wealth, who are in the kingdom of God, for sure. But Paul makes it clear that there are not many. These things do not automatically cut a person off from salvation, but not many does communicate that the majority of those who trust in Christ do not possess those qualities that are esteemed in the eyes of the world. The Lord does it this way so that no one will boast except in Him alone. So many problems in the church could be avoided if we didn't care so much about what the ungodly world thinks of us. If we didn't use associations noted and talented leaders to advance ourselves. If we did... It'd take our eyes off Christ alone and put them on others, which would lead us to boast in our connections with the worldly elite rather than our connection to God and the gospel and Christ and his power. So relying on personal position or connections with important people for the advancement in the church is contrary to the ways of God, but in line, very much in line with the ways of the world. The world prefers the right connections. God's people prefer the right content. The Lord's wisdom chooses the lowly, saving them through the apparent weakness of the cross, redeeming those with no worldly power, no influence, in a manner that the world never would have chosen. No worldly business executive comes around and says, hey, here's how you're going to build this great enterprise called the church. Meet with politicians, okay? Meet with important business leaders. Get them to donate and fundraise. Then market really well on social media. Make sure you reach some athletes who can speak in advertisements for you and vouch for Jesus on your behalf because people will be drawn to them. But then you pull up the single mom. You pull up the struggling married couple. You pull up the who's that? And over and over again, who's that? Who's that? Oh, please don't put them on camera. Wait, that's one of the pastors? Yeah, keep him off camera for sure. Uh, What? Huh? Huh? What, What are you doing? Why are you doing it this way? Because the Lord is doing this. It isn't because of any of them that this thing is growing. It's because the Lord is doing it. So God does this so that we boast in Him alone, not in ourselves and not in others. Thirdly, a third reason division grows is when we believe the gospel isn't enough so we place more trust in personality than in the preaching of the word. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. 
And I, when I came to you, brothers, Paul says, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Paul says, and it's worthwhile to strive to be a good speaker. Paul's not condemning that in and of itself. But Paul did not focus on his speaking abilities at the extent of the content of what he was preaching. He placed the utmost importance on what he was saying, not how he was saying it. See, our interest, brothers and sisters, should be content-driven. It should be, what is he saying first? Not just how is he saying it. How he says it is important. But what he says is way more important. Message over manner. Always. No matter how brilliant the spokesperson, they cannot achieve what only divine sovereignty can accomplish. The lack of eloquence in Paul's delivery, not his physical weaknesses, inhibited the power of the gospel. And that's his point here. The power is in the message of the gospel itself. In fact, it's good that power is inherent in the word itself and not in the abilities of the preacher, because otherwise our faith might not rest in Christ. It would rest in the person who preached Christ to us. Because we would be impressed with their style and their delivery. But Paul didn't preach to entertain or to please. He wasn't angled to receive human approval. The wise and persuasive words that he refused to engage in doesn't mean that he didn't attempt to persuade. We know he did from Acts 18 when he got in Corinth. Paul specifically tried to persuade others under his preaching we're told, but rather he didn't seek to preach in a way that so entranced people with the flair that they would find themselves receiving his message for stylistic reasons rather than substantive ones. And that was his concern, that they would dismiss the content because the packaging was so attractive, or they would receive the packaging and fail to look at the content and realize it was sick, like false teachers often did in Corinth. So, fourthly and finally, division grows when we believe the gospel isn't enough, so we place more trust in persuasion than in the person of the Holy Spirit. See, Paul says in verse 6 of chapter 2, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But it's written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world but the Spirit who's from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. But the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord? So as to instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. 
See, Paul is putting all his chips on two things. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus dying, rising again, and the work of the Holy Spirit to bless that gospel to people's hearts. That is all that he's relying on. He says, that's why you're Christians. Not because of Apollos, not because of Cephas, not because of me, but because that message itself contained power that was blessed by the Holy Spirit to your heart and your life. And that's why you're a Christian. And so where does the glory go? Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the whole movement of this section. That's the whole thing he's trying to do with this church is move them off of the man focus and onto the son of God focus through the gospel and explaining to them how they actually got to be what they were. It wasn't the packaging. It was what was in the packaging. Paul imparts another kind of wisdom, he says, to the mature, indicating that these people were not thinking maturely about their conversion because they were thinking about the people that led to it, not the Christ who used those people to bring them to himself. It's not worldly, Paul says. This wisdom's in worldly. I don't, I don't operate according to the principles of the world. I, I impart a secret and hidden wisdom. Now, is he saying this is a wisdom that was secretly disclosed to me that no one else knows about? I said, no, no, that's not his point. His point is the wisdom that I am disclosing is the wisdom that the Spirit has revealed. In that sense, it's secret. But it's contained for all to know in the gospel message. The point of secret and hidden wisdom is that it didn't come from us. And it didn't originate with us. It refers to wisdom that we could never figure out on our own. But that was given to us through revelation of God by the Holy Spirit. So he implicates the world as essentially foolish because they had understood God's wisdom to be something they could figure out on their own. We can get this. We can get the gospel on our own. Paul says, no, you can't. You can understand the gospel in terms of Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus will forgive our sins. You can understand those propositionally, but you can't embrace it and build your whole life on it and around it apart from the Holy Spirit. See, God has revealed this wisdom through his Spirit, and the Spirit searches all things, including the depths of God, and the Spirit imparts God's wisdom to us through the gospel. So the ultimate wisdom we need for salvation cannot be discovered by us. It must be revealed to us by the Holy Spirit of God through the word of the gospel. So the purpose of the gift of the Spirit is that believers would understand what God has given to us through Christ's death and resurrection. The wisdom that believers enjoy is not owing to our intelligence, since that wisdom didn't have a human origin. Spiritual matters are inaccessible to us and can only be given to us through the Holy Spirit. We lack the innate capacity to appreciate and receive spiritual truth, and therefore only those who have the Spirit can grasp the things of the Spirit. Knowing God is therefore not a matter of self-discovery, it's a matter of spirit revelation in the life of the person. So since the Holy Spirit grants that knowledge, and God must disclose it to us, we have no basis for boasting and no basis for pride because we have it. Again, Schreiner says, unbelievers do not and cannot know the mind of the Lord since they are not people of the Spirit. Since they do not understand the Lord's mind, they have no capacity to assess people of the Spirit. Believers, on the other hand, have the mind of Christ and are those able to assess, evaluate, and receive spiritual reality. Still, 
There is no reason to boast about knowing Christ's mind since believers lack any native capacity for discerning the mind of the Lord. They know the Lord's thoughts only through the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, where does all the glory go but to you? Where does it go but to him? Everything we have, we have received, brothers and sisters, through the message of the gospel empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's that and that alone that eradicates these divisions from the church, knowing that it was one Lord who saved us. It was one spirit that indwells us. It's one word that was preached to us. It's one gospel that was believed by us. It's one baptism that we received in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's those theological realities that God gave us through illumination by the Holy Spirit that shatters all this lesser forms of things we might unite around. Who is Paul compared to Christ? Who is Apollos compared to the Holy Spirit? Who is Cephas compared to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Put these men in their place. They are, we are thankful for them. They are brothers in the Lord, but the Lord alone gets the glory. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you have set up the economy of salvation in such a way that you and you alone receive the glory. It's not through human wisdom. It's not through self-discovery. It's not through applying ourselves to knowledge. It's not through trying to find out all the intricacies and secret mysteries of the universe. It's not through conspiracy theories. It's not through studying the great books of the Western world. There's places for all looking into all of that, but none of that is the reason or central to what we are about and who we are as your people. Lord, we are who we are because you have made him Christ Jesus to be to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So Lord, let these divisions fade away. Let them fall away in the light of Christ who is not divided, who was, not, who was crucified for us and in whose name we were baptized. So we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ in whom we boast alone. Amen.